Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the TD Bank Group Q2 2020 Earnings Conference Call. I would like to turn the meeting over to Ms. Jillian Manning, Head of Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Ms. Manning. Thank you, Operator. Good afternoon and welcome to TD Bank Group's second quarter 2020 investor presentation. We will begin today's presentation with remarks from Barrett Masrani, the bank's CEO, after which Riaz Ahmed, the bank's CFO, will present our second quarter operating results. Ajay Bambawale, Chief Risk Officer, will then offer comments on credit quality, after which we will invite questions from pre-qualified analysts and investors on the phone. Also present today to answer your questions are Terry Curry, Group Head, Canadian Personal Banking, Greg Braca, President and CEO, TD Bank, America's Most Convenient Bank, and Bob Dorrance, Group Head, Wholesale Banking. Please turn to slide two. At this time, I would like to caution our listeners that this presentation contains forward-looking statements, that there are risks that actual results could differ materially from what is discussed, and that certain material factors or assumptions were applied in making these forward-looking statements. Any forward-looking statements contained in this presentation represent the views of management and are presented for the purpose of assisting the bank's shareholders and analysts in understanding the bank's financial position, objectives and priorities, and anticipated financial performance forward-looking statements may not be appropriate for other purposes. I would also like to remind listeners that the bank uses non-GAAP financial measures to arrive at adjusted results to assess each of its businesses and to measure overall bank performance. The bank believes that adjusted results provide readers with a better understanding of how management views the bank's performance. Barrett will be referring to adjusted results in his remarks. Additional information on items of note, the bank's reported results, and factors and assumptions related to forward-looking information are all available in our Q2 2020 report to shareholders. With that, let me turn the presentation over to Barrett. Thank you, Jillian, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. The last few months have been an extraordinary time for all of us. On April 2nd, we conducted our first-ever virtual annual meeting. It's hard to believe that with June 1st just around the corner, the sweeping restrictions on economic and social activity implemented to contain the COVID-19 pandemic are still largely in place, though it is encouraging to see reopening measures beginning to take shape in some geographies. Before I turn to our Q2 results, I want to talk about how we are meeting the COVID-19 challenge at TD. The toll exacted by this crisis and lives lost and activity disrupted will reverberate for years to come. Economies around the world have been plunged into recession, and unemployment rates have risen to levels not seen in decades. But while the scale of this crisis still has the power to shock, the response it has elicited is inspiring. From dedicated frontline workers in so many different industries, including financial services, venturing out each day to keep critical services running from businesses and nonprofits fighting to maintain their operations and support their staff, from central banks and regulators who've launched new liquidity facilities to keep financial markets functioning and ease the supply of credit to the economy, 
and from governments who implemented bold measures and support to tide households and businesses through this unprecedented suspension of activity. We, we've been proud at TD to contribute to this collective effort. We've been working hard to support our people so they can keep themselves safe while looking after our customers. I want to thank them for their exceptional service. This includes the many colleagues who are keeping our branches, stores, and contact centers open and performing services vital to our customers and the bank's core operations. We've adjusted their work environments to help protect their well-being, changing schedules, reconfiguring floors and offices, and investing in protective equipment and enhanced cleaning. You've recognized the sacrifice they and their families have made with additional compensation and vacation days. We quickly enabled 60,000 of our colleagues to work from home, equipping, equipping them with the tools and technology to work productively while prioritizing security. And for, all our, for, and for all of our colleagues, we committed that there will be no job losses in 2020 as a result of COVID-19. We know this is a stressful time. This assurance is important for our colleagues as well as our customers who are depending on them for support and financial advice in these difficult times. At TD, our people are our greatest asset. Their hard work and dedication has enabled us to deliver swift and comprehensive assistance for our customers. Through our TD Health program in Canada and our TD Cares program in the U.S., we've connected with thousands of customers and been there to serve them in their moment of greatest need. Across our Canadian and U.S. retail businesses, we've provided financial support to over 800,000 customers and accounts, deferring payments on approximately $62 billion in loan balances as of April 30th extending other forms of relief, including premium reductions and deferrals to more than 125,000 TD insurance clients and facilitating the flow of billions of dollars in government funds to businesses through the programs like CBA in Canada and the Paycheck Protection Program in the U.S. We are also helping the federal government deliver income support to Canadian households through the CERB program with 1.4 million direct deposits facilitated during the quarter. In our wholesale bank, we increased total gross lending exposures by $23 billion, providing our corporate, institutional, and government clients with critical funding and liquidity support during a period of severe market dislocation. And TD Asset Management is contributing to stabilizing capital markets, having been selected by the Bank of Canada to manage its commercial paper and corporate bond purchase programs. We've also taken decisive action to support our communities. As part of the TD Ready Commitment, we've announced the TD Community Resilience Initiative, which is allocating $25 million to strengthen our communities and support organizations involved in the COVID-19 recovery effort. I'm very proud of the response we've mounted over the last few months. Our people have demonstrated their ability to adapt to new ways of working almost overnight. And we reshaped the bank's operations just as quickly, supported by the investments we've made to enhance our technology infrastructure and network capacity, build new lending platforms, and launch scalable end-to-end -end customer journeys. These investments in our infrastructure and capabilities enabled us to meet a surge in digital traffic of more than 25% across our banking and insurance businesses, 
manage record trading volumes in our direct investing business, and stay connected to customers across our footprint. From virtual trading desks to video communications to new online and mobile tools delivering payment relief and advice to our more than 14 million active digital customers, TD has remained strong, active, and fully operational from the first day of this crisis, and we are well positioned to continue supporting our customers and colleagues on the road to recovery. These purposeful investments have been made possible by the strength of our model, a diversified business mix backed by North American scale, underpinned by a strong risk culture. It has demonstrated its resilience over time and through a variety of challenging operating environments, and is proving its mettle again now. This quarter, we earned through tremendous headwinds. Earnings were $1.6 billion, and EPS was $0.85, cents as we absorbed a substantial increase in provisions for performing loans, as well as margin pressure from the steep drop in interest rates. Our CET1 capital ratio was 11%, down 70 basis points from the prior quarter on higher RWA, reflecting both the deterioration in the economic environment and the balance sheet growth as we continue to support our clients. A tough quarter, no question, but one that demonstrates the resilience of our model and our strategy. Everything you know about TD has been borne out by this crisis. We build long-term relationships with customers and stand by them in good times and bad. Risk appetite is our compass. We have the ability to execute with speed and purpose when the world shifts around us and the earnings power and balance sheet strength to play our role in the recovery. That recovery will come, though it is not clear how long it will take. The revenue picture is likely to remain challenging given the lower for longer interest rate environment, and provisions for credit losses may remain elevated if the downturn is more prolonged. But the hallmark of TD is our ability to adapt to any operating environment and seize the opportunities it presents. Today, we are firmly focused on the way forward, examining our workplaces and making plans to reopen locations with a focus on continuing to provide safe spaces for our customers and colleagues as we begin the hard work of rebuilding. Banking is a critical service, an engine of economic growth and a pillar of the financial system. For 165 years, TD has been privileged to play this role. Given the power of our model, the strength of our balance sheet, and our distinctive culture, I'm confident that we will emerge from this crisis stronger and better positioned to continue serving our customers, colleagues, and communities. I'll wrap up with two thoughts. First, I'm very proud of how we've responded to this challenge as an industry. We have fierce competitors, but with a strong tradition of mutual respect for each other as well as our counterparts in government and the supervisory agencies. Drawing on our long experience and our collective expertise, we've been working to deliver the right outcomes for our customers and clients as well as the economy and society. I also want to thank our 90,000 people who have been bringing their best selves to work each day under very trying circumstances. You embody our purpose to enrich the lives of our customers, colleagues, and communities and give meaning to our vision to be the better bank. With that, I'll turn it over to Riaz. Thank you, Bharat. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Please turn to slide nine. 
This quarter, the bank reported earnings of $1.5 billion and EPS of $0.80. Cents. Adjusted earnings were $1.6 billion and adjusted EPS was $0.85. Cents. Revenue increased 3%, reflecting volume growth across our businesses and record wholesale revenues, partially offset by margin compression and lower fee income as a result of reduced customer activity in the banking businesses. Provisions for credit losses increased to $3.2 billion, largely reflecting higher performing PCLs. Expenses decreased 2% year over year. Notwithstanding, approximately $75 million in direct costs incurred this quarter related to COVID-19. The decline in expenses primarily reflects higher PCLs for the U.S. strategic cards portfolio, which is offset in corporate non-interest expenses. As you know, the partner share of the revenue and PCL for the U.S. strategic card portfolio program is held in the corporate segment, with an offsetting entry representing the partner share of the net profits recorded in corporate non-interest expenses, resulting in no impact on corporate or total bank net income. Higher PCL this quarter, including for the retailer program partners, resulted in a smaller net profit share and therefore a lower charge to expenses. We have included an illustrative example on slide 27 to help clarify the gross and net accounting requirements for this portfolio. Please turn to slide 10. Canadian retail net income was $1.2 billion, down 37% year over year, reflecting higher PCL and expenses partially offset by revenue growth. On an adjusted basis, net income decreased 36%. Revenue was up 1%, reflecting volume growth in deposits and loans and higher insurance premiums and wealth fees, partially offset by margin compression. Average loans rose 5% and deposits rose 10% year-over-year, reflecting growth in both personal and business volumes. Wealth assets were down 2%, reflecting declining in market values. On a spot basis, loans and deposits for Canadian PNC were up 4% and 13% respectively as a quarter end. Margin was 2.83%, a decrease of 11 basis points from the prior quarter, reflecting lower interest rates and competitive pricing in term deposits. Total PCL increased by $762 million quarter over quarter, primarily reflecting higher performing PCL. Total PCL as an annualized percentage of credit volumes was 107 basis points, up 71 basis points quarter over quarter. Expenses increased 4%, reflecting higher spend supporting business growth, including investment in frontline staff and changes in pension costs and volume-driven expenses. Adjusted expenses were up 5%. Please turn to slide 11. U.S. retail net income was U.S. $261 million. U.S. retail bank net income was U.S. $87 million, down $666 U.S. dollar million, down U.S. dollar $666 million, reflecting higher PCL, lower revenue, and higher expenses. Average loan volumes increased 7% year-over-year, reflecting growth in the personal and business customer segments. Deposit volumes, excluding the TD Ameritrade sweep deposits, were up 10%, including 8% growth in the core consumer checking accounts. TD Ameritrade sweep deposits were up 24%. On a spot basis, loans were up 12%, 
and deposits excluding TD Ameritrade were up 19% as a quarter end. Spot TD Ameritrade deposits were up 37%. Net interest margin was 2.93%, down 14 basis points sequentially, primarily reflecting lower deposit margins. Total PCL, including only the bank's contractual portion of credit losses in the strategic SCARP portfolio, was U.S. $814 million, up $571 million from the prior quarter. The U.S. retail net PCL ratio was 2.03%, up 144 basis points from last quarter. Expenses increased 6% year-over-year, reflecting increases in legal provisions, partially offset by productivity savings. We had a U.S. $82 million tax recovery this quarter, primarily reflecting lower pre-tax income, partially offset by higher provisions related to changes in tax law. The contribution from TD's investment in TD Ameritrade decreased to U.S. $174 million, primarily reflecting reduced trading commissions and higher operating expenses, partially offset by increased trading volumes. Please turn to slide 12. Net income for wholesale banking was $209 million, a decrease of $12 million, reflecting higher PCL, partially offset by higher revenue. Revenue was nearly $1.3 billion, reflecting higher trading-related revenue from interest rate and foreign exchange trading, and higher debt underwriting fees, partially offset by losses in equity trading in very volatile markets. PCL was $374 million, an increase of $357 million from the prior quarter. PCL impaired was $194 million, reflecting credit migration largely in the oil and gas sector. PCL performing was $180 million, primarily related to a significant deterioration in the economic outlook, including its impact to credit migration. Expenses were $616 million, up 3%, reflecting higher volume-related expenses. Please turn to slide 13. The corporate segment reported a net loss of $202 million in the quarter, compared to a net loss of $151 million in the second quarter last year. Reported net loss increased primarily reflecting a lower contribution from Treasury items and higher net corporate expenses, partially offset by lower amortization of intangibles. Adjusted net loss was $143 million compared with an adjusted net loss of $95 million in the second quarter last year. Please turn to slide 14. Our common equity tier one ratio ended the quarter at 11%, down 69 basis points from Q1. Organic capital generation added 20 basis points to capital this quarter including 19 basis points from a reduction in our expected loss shortfall. As you know, when losses calculated for regulatory capital purposes exceed accounting provisions, this excess is deducted from capital. With this quarter's increase in allowances, the gap has narrowed and we recoup some of the capital previously deducted. We also saw an 11 basis points benefit from Aussie's transitional arrangements for expected credit loss provisioning. We also saw losses on fair value through OCI securities, and we completed the repurchase of 7.8 million common shares in mid-March. The 80 basis points decline in CT1 attributable to risk weight growth was primarily a function of higher credit risk risk weighted assets, reflecting volume growth in our commercial and wholesale banking businesses, 
as we supported our customers with new and increased credit facilities, a decline in asset quality reflecting negative credit migration in this challenging environment, which RJ will discuss shortly. And as you know, we have been migrating our U.S. bank assets from standardized to AIRB, and this particular quarter, we transitioned a credit card portfolio, which cost us nine basis points. While this particular transition was negative, we expect that the Sorry, while this particular portfolio transition was negative, the migration to AIRB has generally been positive to the capital calculation, and we expect it to continue to be positive with ongoing migration through the second half of this year. We saw market risk risk-weighted assets increase by $5 billion in our wholesale business, reflecting the volatility in interest rates and credit spreads this quarter. Leverage ratio was 4.2%, and our LCR ratio was 135%, both well above regulatory minimums. Effective this quarter, we have reduced the rate of CET1 capital allocated to our business segments from 10.5% to 9.0%. In addition, for prudence, we have also introduced a 2% discount on our dividend reinvestment plan for the dividend declared today. With that, I'll turn the call over to Ajay. Thank you, Riyaz, and good afternoon, everyone. Please turn to slide 15. Gross impaired loan formations were 1.78 billion, stable quarter over quarter at 24 basis points. Please turn to slide 16. Gross impaired loans ended the quarter at 3.6 billion or 47 basis points, up 2 basis points quarter over quarter and down 1 basis point year over year. The quarter-over-quarter quarter increase in gross-impaired loans was driven by the Canadian retail segment in both the consumer and commercial lending portfolios. The wholesale segment largely reflected in the oil and gas sector and the impact of foreign exchange. Please turn to slide 17. We call that our presentation reports PCL ratios both gross and net of the partner share of the U.S. strategic card credit losses. We remind you that credit losses recorded in the corporate segment are fully absorbed by our partners and do not impact the bank's net income. The bank's PCL in the quarter were $3.2 billion or 176 basis points. PCLs were up across all segments and all major asset classes and were primarily related to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Please turn to slide 18. The bank's impaired PCL increased 160 million quarter over quarter, mainly due to credit migration in the wholesale segment, largely in the oil and gas sector. Performing PCL increased by 2.1 billion quarter over quarter, and I will address this momentarily. Please turn to slide 19. I would now like to take a few minutes to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on our allowance for credit losses. The allowance for credit losses increased by 2.6 billion this quarter, raising the bank's total allowance coverage of gross loans and acceptances from 74 basis points to 103 basis points. This is primarily due to higher performing allowances, 
including the impact of credit migration, reflecting a significant deterioration in the economic outlook related to the COVID-19 pandemic, partially offset by the mitigating impact of a variety of deferral and government assistance programs available to our clients. The change in the economic outlook incorporates a material increase in unemployment, substantial near-term GDP contraction, and assumes a gradual recovery where economic activity does not return to pre-crisis levels for an extended period. The allowance increase was across the Canadian and U.S. geographies, and by asset class, due to a billion-dollar increase for our business and government portfolios, reflected across multiple industries, including oil and gas, and 1.6 billion increase across the consumer lending portfolios, primarily for the auto, other personal, and credit card portfolios. 438 million of the increase in the credit card's portfolios is attributable to the U.S. strategic card partner share. I'm satisfied with the bank's current allowance coverage considering the provisions added this quarter and our portfolio and geographic mix. The potential for further provisions will largely depend on the magnitude and duration of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Please turn to slide 20. Given the expectation of sustained lower oil and gas prices, I will now take a moment to discuss the bank's exposure to this sector. The bank's pipeline oil and gas loans amount to $12.2 billion and are nearly evenly split across the Canadian and U.S. geographies, and 28% are investment grade. Our concentration to the oil and gas producer and services segments, which are generally most exposed to low energy prices, is relatively small continuing to represent less than 1% of the bank's gross loans and acceptances. Furthermore, in response to lower commodity prices, oil and gas producers have taken a number of risk-mitigating measures, such as reduced capex, temporary production curtailments, and other liquidity bolstering activities. Excluding real estate-secured lending, Consumer lending and small business banking exposures to Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland and Labrador represent 2% of total gross loans and acceptances and have remained stable at that level in recent years. Consumer delinquency and impairment levels in these provinces are elevated and we expect they may be more impacted moving forward given the combined impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and lower oil and gas prices. And we have incorporated this in our allowance for credit losses this quarter. Overall, oil and gas exposures represent a small portion of the bank's lending portfolios. We will continue to regularly perform detailed assessments of our oil and gas exposure as the challenges facing this sector play out and further losses are expected to remain manageable. Now moving back to total bank results, 
Let me briefly summarize. We are operating through challenging conditions given the unprecedented impact from the COVID-19 pandemic. And while the duration of the pandemic and severity of the economic impact remains uncertain, we are well prepared to manage through these difficult times. With that operator, we are now ready to begin the Q&A session. Thank you. We will now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and using a speakerphone, please hit your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. To cancel the question, please press the pound sign. Please press star 1 at this time if you have a question. There will be a brief pause for participants register. Thank you for your patience. And the first question is from John Aiken from Barclays. Please go ahead. Good afternoon. Uh, Maria, as a, a bit of a detail question for you, if you wouldn't mind. Um, on the balance sheet, we saw a significant increase in the uh, um, interest-bearing deposits with banks. Is this a, a transitory impact that happened right at quarter end, or is this going to be a sustained balance that's going to uh, be fairly high? And if that's the case, can you give us some sense as to what that would mean to uh, overall net interest margins? Yes, uh, John, thank you. Uh, as you know, um, throughout uh, the period of the pandemic, and uh, as you mentioned, closer to quarter end, uh, the level of deposits that have been uh, accumulated uh, rose quite significantly, uh, which obviously as a starting point uh, goes into uh, cash balances and then we're able to invest some of it in uh, shorter or longer-term securities. So you're quite right in pointing out that it, uh, way, it, it may well be temporary as uh, uh, clients and customers who have access to customer uh, relief programs as well as government relief programs and that have uh, accumulated some cash in their accounts um, may see that uh, as, as, as they utilize that cash to meet their uh, needs and their obligations, we may see some of that come back. How much of it uh, that we're able to uh, uh, extend uh, into longer-term yield-bearing investments will just depend on uh, uh, the uh, customer behavior that we're able to observe in, uh, in, in, the, in the utilization of that cash. I'd say one other significant contributor to those cash balances was, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, rise in deposits uh, coming out of uh, sweep deposits coming out of TD Ameritrade as a number of um, clients took money out of the market and were holding cash for some period of time. So I think that the impact on aggregate margins would be really not forecastable in the short run here until we see a little bit of stability returning to how clients are managing their finances. I guess you're putting the ball back on my court. Thanks, Rios. I'll over to you. Thank you. The next question is from Gabriel Deshane from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, first question on uh, on earnings. I mean, we're hearing that uh, this quarter earnings don't matter, uh, but eventually people will care about earnings. It pays the dividend and uh, contributes to your capital generation. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of tie in the earnings outlook to your stress scenarios, your internal stress tests. I'm sure you've done it like other banks and, you know, in whatever scenario your quarter one doesn't fall below X, whatever that is. 
one of the components is, of that type of projection would be earnings. I'm just wondering what kind of earnings, uh, you know, levels or generation or growth do you have in, 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 in those types of uh, scenario scenarios? Uh, Gabriel, we, uh, as you would expect, uh, so first of all, I'd answer by saying uh, that earnings always matter. I think you said mm -hmm. this quarter they don't, but uh, that's not how we see it. Uh, earnings always matter. Uh, and uh, uh, what's important, though, is uh, you should know that uh, um, we run a variety of stress tests uh, um, in using uh, different scenarios that are applicable. Um, and uh, clearly, this particular pandemic uh, has been uh, probably um, come, come, come about more rapidly and with duration and severity that uh, I think we can all easily agree is unprecedented. But look, I think uh, we continue to stress test our uh, liquidity and capital positions, and uh, uh, you know you can always come up with very severe adverse uh, uh, scenarios in which uh, earnings may be pressured even more. But on the other hand, uh, as the uh, reopenings uh, become a bit more um, uh, uh, start taking hold more uh, with, with more confidence, then uh, we should also start seeing. Uh, the bank's uh, results uh, react to that. So uh, clearly, it is a function of the uh, unprecedented economic environment we're in. Uh, Gabe, this is Barrett. So uh, I, I'll add to that. Uh, I mean, these are unprecedented times. You know, the reason earnings are depressed is because of the, um, allow, uh, the, the level of allowances the bank has taken. And that is based on, you know, our current view of, you know, what the future looks like. And it's hard to predicted perfectly, but we will be, you know, checking in uh, very, very regularly to see how that plays out. Uh, the other thing I would add is that, you know, one of the hallmarks of TD, one of the strengths of TD is that we'll adapt to the environment we find ourselves in. And I know we will, and I know we will thrive in whatever operating environment, you know, uh, turns out to be uh, the reality. So, so yes, you know, earnings, as Riyadh said, matter. Even this quarter's earnings matter. Uh, but I expect the bank to adapt to the environment we find ourselves in over the next little while. I, I guess what I'm after, though, is, you know, as, as Ajay said, you know, you've got an extended period for when you expect, uh, you know, economic activity to return to normal levels. Uh, you know, what does that, you know, what are your, what are your earnings uh, projections uh, like in that sort of scenario? Is it, uh, you know, back to you know, 2019 sort of profitability uh, by 2022, 23, or, or 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 something other than that. It's hard to give out a, a specific year, Gabriel. Yeah. Okay. Interest rates are, you know, you tell me when interest rates will start to move. Uh, you tell me where, you know, where the economy opens up uh, completely. So it's hard to pin down a particular factor here. I mean, we are in unprecedented times. Uh, but as I've said, you know, notwithstanding the, the, the time that we are going through, uh, TD's business mix, you know, given our scale, our North American scale, what we've been able to do, how we managed through this crisis to date, and how I expect us to adapt going forward. You know, I, I see the bank strength, uh, you know, like I said in my remarks, we, I expect us to be coming out of this stronger than we entered it. And, okay, my, my other question, I'll make it quick, on, on credit. Uh, some banks have talked about the uh, you know, Q3, Q4, expect performing uh, provisions to decline from, from this quarter's level, uh, performing being the operative word. What about the impaired provisions? They're going to be picking up. Uh, is it going to, you know, you'll have 
movements out of stage two into stage three, are they going to offset each other? Or could, you know, the, the pickup in, in stage three provisions keep these, you know, what we're seeing today, and, you know, at that, provision, at that level for, for a number of quarters? Yeah, if I did, let me let me take that. It's a good question. So as you know, we've built a material amount in our allowances this quarter, and most of it is performing. So in future quarters, you know, we do expect to see a high level of impairments. I think the fact that we built these performing allowances is going to help, but there could be some incremental allowance if a particular account goes from performing to impair. But the fact that we've built uh, you know, material amount this quarter, I think, is going to help in, in future quarters. Maybe I'll follow up on that one. Thanks, Gabriel. Thank you. The next question is from Ibrahim Punawala from Bank of America. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, if I could first just uh, very quickly follow up on your answer regarding uh, the impaired PCLs. It, it, it can just help me or help us walk through this. Is it fair to assume that the reserve levels are unlikely to decline anytime soon? So you're going to maintain that reserves plus as things migrate and you see credit migration, you're going to do uh, some PCL uh, tied to those loans as we move forward, resulting in, in a period of elevated PCLs. Is that the right thought process? Even if the macro backdrop, your assumptions around unemployment don't change, we should see elevated PCLs just by the migration of uh, the loan book. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good question, and let me take a few minutes to answer that. So, as you know, we have built material amount of PCL this quarter. There is, however, tremendous amount of uncertainty with respect to duration and severity of this crisis, the shape of the recovery. What I would say is if the outlook remains unchanged, then yes, this would be the high water mark for us. However, there's one caveat, because if there's change from performing to impaired, then you could see some increase because of impact. However, if the outlook improves, you could even see a reduction or a release. And if the outlook worsens, there could be an add. So I think you've got to keep in mind that the whole environment we're dealing with here is very uncertain. But the key message is, like, we have built a substantial amount of PCL this quarter, and that's based on our forward-looking view. So that will change only if our forward-looking view changes. Got it. So, so that sounds a lot more like you, you, your PCLs reflect your life of loss expectations for this book. Yes, that's the IFRS 9 principle. So we are following our, our uh, accounting standards. Got it. And I guess just uh, separately, the others uh, uh, in terms of capital, so if, if we can just talk about in terms of your capital outlook, uh, in what uh, balance sheet growth might do uh, as we move forward, and you mentioned uh, uh, continued transition to AIRB should be positive. If you could address those two and, and give us a sense of where the CET1 goes from here. Uh, Ibrahim, as you know, uh, we um, uh, entered into this uh, crisis carrying uh, a tremendous uh, balance sheet and uh, strength in capital and liquidity, and this is a hallmark of TD that you're well familiar with, that we uh, do carry plenty of capital and liquidity. Sometimes we have uh, 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 remarked in a folksy way that we make uh, 
that we want to be able to make uh, loans during bad times as well. And so as you can see from the growth in our balance sheet, we are clearly doing that. Uh, we're standing by our clients uh, when they need us, and we intend to continue to do so. And as the economy reopens and demand materializes for uh, additional credit, uh, we will uh, be uh, extending that credit uh, within the risk appetite of TD that you are well familiar with. So I, uh, I, I think carrying uh, strong amounts of capital in this uh, environment to take advantage of opportunities is a prudent thing to do. Got it. So should we expect? Should we not be surprised if the capital ratio is into the tens over the next quarter or two as you extend credit? Are there some RWA inflation? Like to credit, is that a reasonable assumption going forward? Well, in 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 in, in ordinary course times, uh, you know that uh, we continue to generate uh, capital and then uh, reinvest it in the business to create growth. Uh, as RJ just indicated, we are in a period of uh, uh, uncertainty, and uh, if uh, the economy recovers well, we will be continuing to. Uh, to extend credit uh, to our clients, and if it turns out that things uh, go the other way, then uh, you, we may well see additional allowances and more migration. So we're really not into a period right now that is uh, forecastable with any degree of uh, high degree of confidence. Good. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Steve Terriel from H Capital. Please go ahead. Thanks very much. First, I just wanted to circle with Riaz. Riaz, you talked about some positives on ARB migration in the second half of the year for the U.S. banks. Can you just give a bit of detail around what portfolios and the level of materiality there? Uh, well, the one that, uh, you know, the biggest portfolio that remains to be uh, migrated is our U.S. non-retail portfolio, and you know that it is a large and a material portfolio, uh, which we're uh, working hard to uh, f uh, to, to complete the, uh, the work to have it uh, implemented, uh, hopefully by the end of this year. And do you, do you have a ballpark of materiality to it? Or is it too and that's soon? Uh, something that uh, I'm not uh, really uh, prepared to disclose right now, Steve, as you know, with the number of uh, moving parts between uh, shortfall calculations and uh, the implementation of it uh, will be uh, will, will, will need to be quite careful and uh, I'd be low to really quantify that for you right now. Okay. And then thanks for that. And Barrett, you know, you mentioned in your opening remarks coming out better positioned. Uh, this pandemic could open up some opportunities to expand inorganically in the U.S. Mostly, TD's been on pause the last few years in terms of, of deal flow in the United States. Do you, do you think, what are your thoughts sort of early innings? Do you think this has the potential to turn into a, a meaningful opportunity to, to scale up or fill in your footprint? Well, just uh, firstly, you know, let me add to your first question to Riaz. You know, um, sure. If you, if, you, if you look at our history at TD, you know, strong capital levels and the need to maintain strong capital levels uh, is just part of our character. You know, that's that's what we do. We think it's important, you know, to manage capital, you know, very closely, and that's what you would expect out of TD. Um, so, as Riaz is cautious in in telling you what he did, we, and rightly so, given the environment, but I can tell you that you know uh, you should expect TD uh, to to have a cautious view and a prudent view. On how we manage capital. Regarding your second question, 
you know, the, we are uh, through the uh, cycle type of lenders. You know, we have a particular risk discipline in the bank. Uh, very proud of, you know, how the bank performs in different environments. The business mix we have um, is, is something that, you know, we worked hard to have. And, and we have a great scale in, in, in both sides of the border. Uh, and the good news here is that the, the TD is not required to do the to do a, a, an M&A type of transaction because we are strategically challenged. We are not. But having said that, the environment we are in, you know, is an interesting one. It is unprecedented, and I am sure, you know, given the type of uh, situation we are facing, that there may be opportunities out there. And if there are, uh, then of course you would expect us. Uh, uh, to, to look at them seriously, but we will only do that if, uh, you know, to, to have, we would have to make sure that we have a better understanding of what this environment may turn out, you know, how bad it might get. Uh, we have no interest in, in inheriting anybody else's problems, and uh, we will have to look at whether it, it makes strategic sense, makes financial sense, and timing sense. So if all those things turn out to be uh, well aligned, then of course we'll look at it seriously. Thanks for that, Barrett. Thank you. The next question is from Manny Grauman from Cormark Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. A question on your cards business. Um, with your cards business and kind of focus on travel rewards and then in the U.S., uh, the exposure to a few big retailers, is there a need to rethink the bank's card strategy right now? Um, so this is Barrett again. Uh, you know, why don't I pass on, firstly, the, the Canadian part uh, to Terry Curry. Uh, Terry? Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so um, I would say we're very comfortable with the lineup of credit cards that we have available to Canadians. We like to say we have a card uh, for every uh, to meet every Canadian's needs, and obviously those are the travel cards, uh, as you cited, but also cashback cards uh, across a variety of categories. You know, clearly in this quarter, uh, given the circumstance, uh, you know, we, we probably had expected $5 billion or more in spend that didn't materialize. Uh, but, um, you know, we still feel, if you look forward, uh, that we're well positioned across categories. Um, and looking forward to the Air Canada Partnership and Loyalty Program launching uh, upcoming later this calendar year. Thanks, Terry. And Greg, do you want to pick up the U.S. side of it? Sure. So uh, thanks for the question. I just had that, uh, as we've been talking about for the last several years, we've spent a lot of time and energy building our card platforms in the U.S. from scratch. And it includes not only the partnership programs that you talk about with the large retailers, and certainly if one comes up that makes sense and uh, it's the right partner and we understand the dynamics um, and the uh, economics make sense, we're interested in expanding those. Uh, but also our de novo bank card business, uh, you know, our own branded bank card for our own customers. We spend time building that, and obviously we look continue to, to continue to leverage that with our own customer base uh, going forward. Yeah, thanks, Greg. And many, just to add, this is Barrett again. I think we've talked about this in previous calls. I think uh, about a year ago, two years ago, Terry talked about the investment we've made or, or we were making at the time to expand our card offerings in Canada. Um, you know, with the cashback card and the entry-level card and all that. And, and the timing turned out to be excellent for that, you know, in order to diversify our card portfolio. And as you know, 
you know, our, our, uh, our approach uh, for, for, for unsecured lending is, is to go with, you know, the prime side of the, the FICO scores and all that. So I, I wanted to add that. And in the U.S., you know, this has been uh, uh, lots of questions around, you know, why is TD more interested in partnership deals? You know, Greg did say that it did provide us a foundation to build our card portfolio. But I think now the pandemic is showing that those partnership deals have turned out to be terrific. Because, you know, lion's share of these losses, if they happen to, 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 to materialize, will be for the account of the partner. Uh, so these things work out in, in different ways, in different circumstances. But given where we are, we are very happy that a big portion of our U.S. portfolio is in our partnership deals. Thanks for that. And just a follow-up on the uh, partnership with, with Air Canada. Do you have the ability to change any terms of that agreement? And I guess more importantly, do you foresee having any of those kinds of discussions? Sorry, about that, Bear. Um, you know, as uh, you would expect, uh, we uh, would have a contract with Air Canada that we would uh, honor, and, and we're excited over the long term about the prospect of this partnership. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Sumit Maholtra from Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good afternoon. Uh, start with Riaz on the capital slide, please. So you uh, you show us here that the uh, market risk component of the portfolio had an 11 basis point impact on CT1, and we can see uh, in, in some of your capital disclosure that VAR was up quite significantly this quarter, and, and that's reflected in the movement in risk levels. The, the offset that you have in methodology, was this the implementation of the stressed uh, stress VAR, or, or sorry, relaxation of the stress VAR uh, relief, or was there other components at play? And I ask because most of your competitors actually had market RWA decline this quarter, and obviously the impact is different for you. Just wondering if this is something specific to this quarter that, that may reverse going forward. No, I think you've got it right that uh, with the uh, promotion of the uh, data, which includes the volatile periods, you see the rise in the risk weights, and then that line item you're referring to includes the uh, relief uh, and the modification that uh, came from OSCE during this uh, period of time. And with the with the relief in, in place and the data updated, so is this, for lack of a better term, a, a run a run rate level for the for the bank now, or uh, as market conditions have eased, how quickly does that get reflected in how uh, the, 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 risk, the movement in risk levels is captured here? No, I think as, uh, as you see markets uh, starting to stabilize and uh, the volatility coming in and spreads coming in, you, you, we would expect to see market risk uh, numbers start migrating back down. And just to just to add to that, you know, you do have the stress data as part of your data set. so. You know, I think the VAR and SVAR will come down, and that helps, but it's going to remain elevated from what it used to be before. Right. Until the 200 and odd days pass. 59, yeah. yeah. So, all right, so there's this movement this quarter. As far as credit's, con or credit's concerned, I think we all know that there was a, a heavy level of, of drawdown activity. And, and, Bharat, maybe I'll put this one to you. I'm a bit surprised with the bank sitting at 11%, and, and perhaps at least on the on the draws perspective, there, there should be some relief on that going forward. Uh, putting the discount in on the on the drip here, at least the way I look at it, effectively 
uh, equates to 25 million shares going going out the door over the next year if it remains in place. Are, were you concerned that without this this capital uptick that the bank may move below uh, some of the the thresholds uh, that that regulators look at or the market looks at uh, in terms of capital adequacy? Why did you think this this was the time to to put this in place? So, so many, you know, best way to describe this is Riaz used the term, you know, that and, and traditionally this is what the bank has been. You, you, you've known us for many years. Uh, that you know, prudent capital management is the right phrase at TD. I mean, these are unprecedented times, and and you know, you you do want to just make sure uh, that you're doing the prudent thing here. And if it turns out that you know uh, our expectation of where. Uh, uh, where this economy might be, and this is a you know might be a short-term issue, then we can always uh, switch it off. Uh, I, and the other question somebody had asked me, you know, uh, who knows? You know, there might be other opportunities available in the market. Uh, we might want to take advantage of that. You know, given our scale, given our um, you know ability to 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 integrate and convert, you know, acquisitions. So. So we're looking at it, and it's not only, by the way, on, a, on an M&A front, um, but traditionally TD through through any downturn has also been able to take market share. And at least my urging to to our to our business leaders is that we should not lose that muscle as we go through this uh, uh, this, this particular event uh, because it will throw up opportunities in the marketplace to organically grow our franchise as well. So to have all that flexibility, I think it's important to have, you know, very prudent capital management in place. And I'll finish with one for, for Terry, if it's okay. Uh, as this week has gone on, I think most of us were ready for the uptick in provisions. We're ready for the pressure on them. I think one that probably we, or at least from my seat, should have been more more prepared for is just the pressure we're seeing on, on some of the fee income lines that we, we normally take for granted in, in your in the PNC segment, so for for both you and Greg, obviously weighing on on the revenue lines, we've talked a lot about some of the changes that might happen in terms of real estate and and how employees work. When the bank uh, considers some of the waivers that have been put in place, whether it's you know service charges, in some cases creditor insurance, we're obviously seeing weaker card revenues. Do you feel there are aspects in either of your businesses from from these reductions that could have a longer lasting impact on how uh, customers expect their banks to behave when it comes to the fee income lines within PNC? So there's a lot in that question. Let me start with um, uh, just, just the other income growth uh, and then and then move to perhaps business uh, changes. So, uh, you know, pre the pandemic, uh, we would have seen kind of low to mid single digit range uh, growth in other income. So, uh, again, it's been said earlier in the call, it's very uncertain the size and shape of uh, what happens going forward. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're going to be very careful as we think through any decisions we might make about the business moving forward. You know, clearly the big impacts have been the spend uh, that didn't materialize in the cards business, as I mentioned, and then uh, FX revenue for both cards and everyday banking. Um, you know, we would have seen airlines spend in the quarter down over 90% as an example. Um, but, you know, daily essentials held up well, and that sort of speaks to that cash back card offering and the breadth of our lineup. Um, if you're uh, sort of taking uh, the, the, you know, if this became sustained, I think is the question you're asking, then how do we think about 
you know, our business moving forward. Um, you know, I feel like uh, we came into this situation incredibly well positioned, uh, with strong market share uh, positions across many of our businesses. You also saw the benefit of the diversification in the Canadian retail business with the strong wealth and insurance performance. Uh, clearly, right now, our focus is on safely enabling business uh, to be done uh, and continuing to uh, carefully manage uh, our distribution back. Uh, but we had been, uh, through our Future Ready strategy, uh, working towards the, uh, you know, sort of inevitability of more migration of simple transactions to digital and that need for customers on the more complex uh, pieces of their financial life uh, to be able to meet with advisors and to, to get advice in an omni-channel way. And you can see that the, you know, investments we've made in our business in omni-channel have paid off uh, with industry-leading digital results. Uh, you've seen our digital adoption and engagement continue to grow almost 8 million active digital users, 72% of whom are mobile active, and digital adoption up 323 basis points this quarter. So I would say, uh, you know, it's possible uh, as we work forward and we consider uh, the flexibility that work from home has allowed in particular for our contact center and the opportunity that that might uh, give us in terms of talent, uh, you know, joining the bank, you know, in a full-time way across branch and phone channel as an example versus part-time in one part of the business. Uh, the ability for our folks to be redeployed, we've been temporarily redeploying them uh, to collections work, to helps work, uh, to customer cares work, uh, to fraud work. And so the, the ability for our people to work more seamlessly and our customers to engage with us more conveniently as we've made more automation available are things that I think will have lasting impacts to the business. Um, uh, but as we think about uh, how many branches we would have, uh, what we will do uh, in those four walls, uh, will be very carefully guided by how customer behavior evolves over time. Um, and I would just say, it, you know, this has been said by many of my colleagues, but, uh, you know, what we've found is just the power of the culture and the power of our people uh, working at TD. They have been dedicated and innovative and compassionate and supportive, uh, many of them still face-to-face -face with clients uh, and very actively busy in our open branches. So unless uh, I think Terry answered this, Greg, I think Terry answered that perfectly, even from the south side of the border. And uh, anything you want specifically on, uh, on the U.S., I'm happy to go into, but I would just leave you with, you know, at least on the other income side to the story, um, you know, we're going to be guided in the short run by do the markets open back up, does the economy rev back up again? And we certainly saw uh, for the last half of uh, uh, Q2 uh, a dramatic decrease in the U.S. in terms of activity and volumes. Uh, and obviously we're, we're seeing states, uh, you know, begin to reopen real time, and we're going to watch this very, very closely. But happy to, you know, pick up anything specifically on the U.S. you want to cover. I think uh, I think Terry gave me a lot. My interest was really fee income, but we got uh, some some info on the future of uh, of how you plan to uh, interact with your customers as well. So I, I think I'll take the two for one and uh, and leave it there. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's Jillian. We have about six questions left, and so if I could just ask everybody to stick to one question, please, so we don't keep you for too much of the rest of the afternoon. Thank you. 
The next question is from Mario Mondonka from TV Securities. Please go ahead. Good afternoon. This uh, uh, from probably for Riazanate. As this earnings season has has played out, I'm coming to understand what I didn't understand at the very beginning of it. So, what would be helpful to me is to if you could take me through how you contemplated uh, risk migration, essentially the move in PD and expected loss of default, all that stuff. How did that come into the calculation of your performing loan losses? Specifically, was it just a management overlay, or did you, um, did you just apply the model to retail but then look at the individual corporate loans? How did you actually go about that from a migration perspective? Hi, Jason. Thanks. Let me, let me describe the process. I would start by saying is we put substantial effort into our allowance process because we are in an unprecedented circumstance. We started by selecting our scenarios, and of course we give the different scenarios a, a weighting, and then we run them through our models. But I would say that's the starting, that was the starting point for us. Thereafter, we actually added an overlay. Okay, the overlay basically considered a few things. The first is we did a number of portfolio assessments across the bank. Some of them were borrower-level assessments as well. So that kind of informed what overlay we put in. Second is, you know, we looked at macro changes since the time we selected our, our scenarios. So we added uh, an overlay for that. Third is we had to reflect the benefits of the TD relief programs. We had to also reflect the benefit of all the government programs. So we considered all of that and then added an overlay to the model results. But just on PD specifically, it's, the, it's the, basically the macro that drove the PD changes in the case of retail. I'd say in the case of non-retail, it's a combination of the macros plus the various bottom-up and portfolio reviews that we did. Uh, I so, hope yeah, so you're not suggesting you looked at every single commercial loan and corporate loan. I don't think that's even possible. So are you saying you did more of like a, a sampling of it and then implied something from the sample? We looked at it on a pretty broad basis, and we've been looking at it over an extended period, period of time. So it was pretty deep the review. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Sorad Movahedi from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. I, mine's a pretty quick one. Um, when I look at the oil and gas disclosure, um, to me it was surprising the proportion that was non-investment grade. Would, would this have been, broadly speaking, reflection of the credit quality? I, at origination as well, or is this after you've taken downgrades that have taken them into non-investment grade territory? Maybe first I'll ask Bob to comment, and then perhaps you can comment on, on, on the migration part of it, uh, Ajay. Bob, you want to comment on strategically, you know, on, on what sure. the, uh, the, um, would have been a combination of, of, of both, uh, Saurabh. The, uh, the, uh, non-investment grade, uh, portfolio is primarily, uh, the, uh, producer portfolio on both sides of the border, both in uh, Canada and the U.S., uh, and um, that's the uh, reserve-based lending book that we have. Uh, and, uh, you know, in Canada, you know, as a result of the 2016 
uh, a little shock. Uh, you know, that, that book's been uh, uh, slowly working its way through. Uh, you know, we've been in difficult times in Alberta for a period of time, uh, whereas in the U.S., it's uh, the reserve-based lending has been, um, uh, you know, more challenged, just to, but just more recently. So uh, uh, that that has a little less history, um, perhaps being a bit more conservative. And then we did have some migration as well uh, from investment grade into non-investment grade. Roger, you want to pick Yeah, just, just to add. So, you recollect back in 16, we ran a number of stress tests, you know, in the sector. And so, we actually repeated that exercise uh, for the quarter, and we looked at WTI from 20 to $30, gradually increasing. We made assumptions around the heavy oil differential. We certainly made some assumptions around... Natural gas starting with a dollar twenty-five to dollar seventy-five range, gradually building up. So we use that information to determine what kind of downgrade actions were appropriate. But the reason why you're seeing such little investment grade in producer is that we have proactively gone and downgraded, you know, a number of names. Having said that, as Bob said, you know, a lot of the non-investment grade producers are subject to a borrowing base, so that helps. Also, a lot of the large Canadian players tend to be diversified. You know, they have liquidity. They still have access to capital, so they can withstand the volatility. And then in my prepared remarks, I also talked about the mitigating measures that producers themselves were taking. And now the fact that oil prices have picked up as well, you know, helps. But overall, like if you look at our producer exposure, like it's less than 1% of gross loans in BA, so it's still fairly small. But, Ajay, if I could just have a quick follow-up on that. When you look at that portion that was downgraded, can you give me a sense of how much of those that were downgraded would have been originated in the last 12 to 18 months? I wouldn't know that. I think we kind of looked at everything, but I didn't I – didn't, I, didn't I, I just want to know if there was a skew towards the more recent vintages. Uh, there's been pretty good growth in Bob's business. I just want to have a feel for how much of it has been – Maybe late into the you know, late cycle growth, so to speak. I think uh, that uh, very little of that in Canada, um, and uh, you know, some part of that we would have originated in seventeen and eighteen. Uh, some of the, but some of you know, but the, we've been in the business for a long period of time, uh, sort of. So it's uh, there definitely are some new names uh, that the vintage would be uh, seventeen and eighteen, but. There are a lot of pre-existing names as well. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. The next question is from Doug Young from Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi. Good afternoon. Just going back to the strategic card book, and I just noticed that you know targets uh, indicated that. Uh, their revenue share from the profit sharing income from the credit card program actually increased year over year. And it just struck me as strange given the sizable PCL you took that you ran through corporate. And I see, and I haven't had a chance to go look at the examples that are at the back, and I understand that I think the profit share is based more on, on charge-offs than PCLs. But just trying to understand a bit of the nuance there, uh, just in case I'm missing something. Thank you. No, Doug, uh, it, it, the, the differences are exactly as you point out. Uh, number one, that uh, the retailers are not financial institutions uh, or subject to uh, IFRS 9 in the way that we are, and there are timing differences in the, uh, in, in, in the determination and payment of the cash flows under the waterfall agreements. 
And so essentially that provision you've set up as it rolls through um, from a charge off that would hit, wouldn't hit you obviously, but it would hit them and that would come through the allowances that you've set up for that? Well, if you can think of it that in, uh, in, in the corporate segment, we carry the partner's share of the revenue, the partner's shares of, uh, of, of the credit losses, and then the uh, uh, accrued payments to the partners over time gets charged to non-interest expenses. So that's essentially how it works out is uh, that uh, some of the recoveries uh, or payments may come at different points in time under the waterfalls. Okay, I get it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Nigel D'Souza from Veritas. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. Um, so I wanted to touch on um, the disclosure you had in deferral loans. And when I look at the balances, um, your levels of deferral seem to be uh, better than some of your peers have reported so far, especially on commercial lending side. Uh, so I was wondering if you could provide some color on how you administered uh, those deferral programs. Were you more selective on who you granted deferrals to? And is there any relation between you know, the lower, lower levels of deferrals we're seeing in your book uh, and the higher performing PCLs that have been taken this quarter, or, or are those two items uh, completely unrelated? Maybe first, Terry, you might want to take it as to how the deferrals worked out. For sure. Thank you. Um, I'll start with uh, real estate secured lending um, in, uh, in the case, because that's the majority from a personal uh, perspective. Um, the way that that uh, occurs is that across our channels, we have advice and tools available to customers to help them understand not only the benefits to them of uh, taking a deferral, but also the cost to them of doing so. And so uh, we don't know for every individual customer uh, their circumstance. Uh, but what I would say is that our goal is to ensure they really understand the deferral when they take it. For those applications, uh, for those that secured lending deferrals that um, came through and were decisions, the approval rate is close to 100%. Uh, so I think we're meeting the customer's uh, needs uh, to get them the deferral if it's appropriate. They judge it to be appropriate for them, and we, and we uh, facilitate it. Uh, I would say we've had about 8,000 accounts roll off uh, a one-month deferral, and so far those uh, seem to be performing well. Um, from a commercial standpoint, it would be more business-by-business uh, business decisioning, um, and then uh, it'd be a range across the consumer lending categories. Most of the other consumer lending are auto finance, uh, auto finance decisions. Okay, that's really helpful. And the second part of that question about uh, performing loans, for these deferred loans, um, you know, are the majority of them still in stage one, and are you waiting till I guess they roll off the deferral period before you decide on uh, what to migrate to so, phase two or three? So they wouldn't be classes. Sorry. I can take that. I can take that, uh, Terry. So we didn't change the probability of default or, or the borrower risk rating where, where you know loans got deferred. So that was. Just the sure fact that you got a deferral didn't drive the PD or the or, or the BRR. Uh, but what I will say about deferrals is that if no deferrals had existed or we hadn't made any deferrals, I would actually be building a higher allowance. Like I view the deferral programs to be ultimately, you know, risk reducing. But I haven't assumed that it's completely and totally risk reducing. We've given some benefit uh, for the risk reduction, but we have 
built reserves for these deferral programs because in our view it is a matter of time before some become delinquent, others may become impaired as well. That's really helpful. Appreciate the comments. Thanks. Thank you. The next question is from Scott Chan from Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my question is on the on the NIM and maybe for for Greg and Terry's perspective. Um, uh, we, we saw a pretty, uh, I guess, down uh, margin sequentially. Again, now that rates are are low, um, I don't know if they can go much lower. Hopefully not on both sides of the border. Does that signal that maybe we should see uh, more stabilization on the margin uh, in TD's front? Thanks. Yeah, do you want sure. to generally on the overall name, and then maybe we can go to Terry and Greg? Yeah, uh, Scott, as you know, because of the very rapid uh, rate reductions in uh, the second quarter in response to central bank's response to COVID, uh, you get the uh, short-term impact uh, almost uh, immediately, um, and then the long-term comes in as the tractors uh, roll out and uh, depending on the longer-term yield curves. So um, really, from a quarter-to-quarter perspective, uh, they, those rate cuts came in the middle of the quarter, and so there'll, there'll be a full quarterization impact going into the next quarter, so we would see further uh, further uh, margin compression into Q3 just from the short-term rate. So, Terry, uh, the only thing I would add uh, to what Rio said, because he's uh, given the, you know, we'll have the full Q3 uh, sort of impact, so that should uh, further erode margins while other things being equal. The only thing I would add is that, you know, the uh, erosion in Canadian retail Uh, A big portion of that was that we had for about half the quarter the difference between Prime and Cedar compressing uh, quickly and notably. It it restored uh, to more normal levels by the end of April, but that, uh, from a real estate secured lending perspective, for for all of our Prime-based loans, uh, did uh, create some compression. So that is another factor. So the only thing I'd add from the U.S., I think uh, that was covered well, would be the other things we talk about every quarter would be, you know, the, 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 the factors such as mix of the business and, and all of that, uh, that'll play into it from quarter to quarter. But the other item is, is that if in the U.S., you would have known that uh, we effectively had uh, six rate cuts in, in two sessions in early March, and that wasn't completely uh, for a full quarter, so we'll see the, the full quarterization of that in Q3, as well as the fact because of market disruption LIBOR was a lot higher than Fed funds after the rate cuts, uh, and now that LIBOR is returning to uh, more normalized levels, uh, you'll see uh, further effects of that in the NIM in Q3 as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question is from Darko Mihalic from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, thank you. I just wanted to follow up on the deferral programs, and you've given pretty good disclosure on the difference between the U.S. and Canada in terms of amount, and it seemingly looks like it's a bit shorter in the U.S. in terms of the, the, the length of the deferral, a little longer in Canada. And then just tying in what Ajay just said about the risk reduction. So when I look at this from, from the outside looking in, in the U.S., you're going to have a wall of people required to pay again, about three months on average looks like, a little bit later in Canada. Would you consider at that point in time deferring again if 
um, you find circumstances warrant it, or from where you sit today, you, you consider that this was enough, and uh, and we won't have to have deferrals again. Um, Greg, Greg, you want to start off, and then maybe I'll end on that. I'm happy to, and uh, thanks for the question. I would just say that in the U.S., first of all, our lens is around, you know, what's the regulatory guidance and uh, what are we seeing as far as the general market conditions, obviously also guided, you know, our view about how we went at this. Uh, and you're right. For the most part, the deferral programs, whether it was consumer programs across a wide range of products, including mortgage and home equity or unsecured lending, or our auto book, as well as small business. Uh, and those were more standardized programs, and the, and the general tenure was a 90-day extension. Uh, but each of those programs was meant to uh, have a view about what the conditions are like, uh, what the environment is like, and what may be needed 90 days out. Uh, when you look at the mortgage book specifically, it gets a little bit more complicated because obviously mortgages that are sold into the secondary market, the GSEs are involved, and there's some guidance around that that allows for restructuring after the 90 days, either to the back end of the loan or a complete restructuring of the, of the loan. Small business has its own nuance and then the rest of the consumer categories. So I'd say, yes, uh, we'll certainly look at conditions uh, as well as what we can do from an accounting standpoint and a regulatory standpoint as well. Sadarko, this is Barrett. Just to add, you know, when, when the deferral programs, particularly in the U.S., you know, what Greg has talked about through TD Cares that we introduced, I mean, those were done immediately when the lockdown started. And since then, you've seen lots of other programs introduced in the U.S. market, the Triple P program, this Main Street Lending program is just about to be introduced. You saw this direct payments going to, 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 to Americans as well from the U.S. Treasury. So I think the, the 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 view there is that you know this this programs were meant to tide people over until these other programs uh, you know come into play and hopefully all of them work because the triple P program is geared towards folks getting their jobs back because that's how the program works uh, so hopefully all those things work out hard to predict precisely you know exactly what might happen 90 days from now. Uh, and as Greg said, there are other nuances here in the U.S. that we'll have to take into consideration. So hard to to give you a definitive answer uh, at this stage. Okay, thank you. Thank you. There are no further questions at this time. I'd like to turn the meeting back over to Mr. Barat Nasrani. Thank you, Operator, and thank you all for, for joining us. Uh, a tough quarter, no doubt. Uh, but given the circumstance, I think you know it was the right thing for us to to to, to book the, the allowances that that Ajay has talked about. And I do want to take an opportunity, this opportunity to thank our 90,000 you know colleagues around the world. I mean, we have changed you know how we operate this bank overnight. Uh, you know, folks have been working from home. Others have been you know looking after customers at various CD locations. So I could not be more proud as to what they continue to do and deliver for all of our stakeholders, including our shareholders. So thank you for that. And folks, hopefully, you know, we, we will meet in different uh, circumstances 90 days from now. And uh, I wish all of you well and your families as well. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Thank you. The conference has now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time. And thank you for your participation.
Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.